0: I'd like to have you turn to Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. Ephesians chapter 6. As I continue in this prophecy update, uh, which has uh, really been a, a foundational preparation to understand what the deep state is and i don't mean the deep state just politically even though that does have a lot to do with what's going on today but the deep state the deep state the deeper state and the deepest state spiritually and because that has the influence on what is happening in the world today uh, in general and what is happening in the united states of america specifically And uh, We focused on who the enemy is, of course, last week, and how we are to stand against the wiles of the devil, the methodology of the enemy. Today I'd like to read verses 10 through 12 again, and this time focus our attention on 12, while at the same time Building again a prophetic foundation that we need to understand what we'll, what we'll be hearing in the next couple of weeks. being more specific about the deep state and its effect on, on the, the Christian faith as well as the effect that it has on the world today. Finally, my brethren, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I'd like to begin this section of our study in the deep state with a prophetic foundation, one that takes us back to the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. The discourse, or the message, if you will, that Jesus gave to his disciples on the Mount of Olives before entering into the city of Jerusalem just days before going to the cross. It's critical for us to note the timing of the events. This is why I'm going to take some very critical time to look at all three Gospels, what we call the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the, the, the very similar accounts of this same event. I want to begin, though, with Mark 13. Mark chapter 13, verse 29. Now, you're going to have to keep your fingers in all of these places because you're going to go back. I'm doing this on purpose. So Mark 13, verse 29, Jesus says, So ye in like manner when you shall see these things come to pass. Now what has he been talking about? He's been talking about what's happening in the end times, what's what's supposed to be happening in the last days. He says, So ye in like manner when you shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh even at the doors, which means it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. The question we're going to ask is what generation? He said, This generation, keep that in mind. And then in verse thirty one he says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye not know, or ye know not when the time is. And then turn to Matthew twenty four. And again, listen to the very similar message. Of course, it is the same message, uh, but now from the perspective of Matthew, who, by the way, happened to be there. And it says, "So likewise, ye, verse thirty-three. I'm sorry, verse thirty-three. So likewise, ye, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass." till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew recorded an additional statement. And the statement is, is the next verse, verse 36. He said, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. It is going to be a time when people are going to be doing the things that they do on a normal basis, if you will, and even on a very unnormal basis. And whatever it is that they're doing, they will be completely unaware of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now turn to Luke chapter 21. And in Luke's account, beginning at verse 31. Remember, keep your fingers in these places because we're coming right back. In Luke 21 verse 31 it says, So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now notice what Luke records here. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting. Now that that has nothing to do with taking a board and getting on the water and, you know, Riding the waves. Surfeiting literally means the seizure of pain from drunkenness. The seizure of pain from drunkenness. And then, of course, he goes on. Lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. A trap. It's like a trap. That's what a snare is. Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now that is a very significant statement that Jesus makes because what he is saying here in that particular verse, verse 36, is that he is letting us know about the rapture of the church. And that we, that we need to be watching and praying that we may be accounted worthy to escape all those things. Now, sadly, that day is going to come unawares on many professing Christians who have been told or taught that most, if not all, of Bible prophecies have already been fulfilled. Now that is a theological position called preterism. Preterism means that uh, those who hold to this believe that there is, uh, that every, pretty much every, I mean this is a general statement, but pretty much every prophecy has been fulfilled already. There are no more prophecies to be fulfilled. The very same thing goes with those who teach what is called replacement theology. That, uh, Jesus, that uh, the church now has replaced Israel. That Israel is no longer uh, a concern to God. That modern day Israel today has no legitimacy prophetically. The preterists believe that. Replacement theology people believe that. Those who are amillennial, those who are Pre, or I should say post-millennial or post-tribulational, as, as it were, have no sense that, <clears throat> you know, there is really a time frame that Jesus himself set to come back to be on this earth for a thousand years and to reign from Jerusalem, literally to reign from Zion for a thousand years in a, in a temple, a new temple built by God himself, built by Jesus himself. These are the things that the scriptures tell us But they've come to that point where they don't believe these things. And they think anybody that believes in the rapture of the church is kind of nuts. Maybe we're the conspiracy theorists of the day. Okay, that's all right. I don't care what anybody thinks. I think I care about what the word of God says. So going back to the previous gospels then. You kept your fingers in all three places. consider, if you will, the verse previous to the statements that I just read. Go back to Mark 13, but now look at verse 28, the verse right before where we started. What does Jesus say? Now learn a parable of the fig tree. "When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know this summer is near." So ye, in like manner, when you shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh even at the doors. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Now we have an idea about that generation or this generation that Jesus mentions because of his statement about the parable of the fig tree. Keep that in mind. Go to Matthew 24. And now look at verse 32. Same thing. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass. Which generation? The generation that will see the rebutting of the fig tree. Keep that in mind. And therefore, he says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Luke 21, verses 28 through 33. Now, this, I'm adding one verse here. So, I, I, so you can remember now where we are in what Jesus is teaching His disciples, he is telling them, hey, by the way, this is your business. Remember what we said last week that Rick Warren said that prophecy is none of our business? This tells us it is our business. And Jesus said, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And he spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. Well, that's different. When they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Jesus told his disciples... Now remember that this is a prophetic foundation for everything else that we're going to say in the next few weeks. But Jesus told his disciples and us. Remember, the word of God is for us. This especially. Because we are now living in what can be considered the last days. So Jesus told his disciples and us to watch with outstretched necks. Because that's what it means to lift up your head, to watch with outstretched necks. Now, gravity has taken over my neck, so it's not going to stretch too high. But those of you who can, we need to outstretch your neck and look and lift up your head because our redemption is drawing near. Our redemption today is drawing near. Disasters will abound on every hand. The economy and ecology of the planet will be in chaos. War after war and pestilence after pestilence will come and go. No matter how many peace talks we uh, will convene, no matter how technologically and medically advanced mankind has become, an antichrist will battle his numerous foes while nations will be drawn to Armageddon. And to pinpoint the timing of these events, Jesus spoke a parable about trees, in particular the fig tree. And then he said, and all the trees. You see, several trees are used symbolically in the Hebrew scriptures for Israel, for the nation of Israel. During this, uh, the, well, generally speaking, the Hebrew scriptures speak of Israel this way, using the vine, using the olive tree tree, and the fig tree. Now the fig tree speaks of the nation of Israel during this age. Consider that the first mention of the fig tree is in connection with the fall of Adam and with his own efforts to cover his shame, which turned out to be a totally ineffective attempt at covering their sin and their nakedness. We all read Genesis 3, verse 7, The eyes of them, both the man and the woman, were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. But we know that the Lord God had a much better plan. In Genesis 3:21: Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. What is implied here is that God had to kill an animal, more than likely a sheep. And the sheepskin was used to cover them, to clothe them. It gives us the picture of Christ, the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. As Jesus made his way toward Jerusalem, He cursed a barren fig tree that bore nothing but leaves. A symbolic act depicting graphically the condition of the nation of Israel at the time of the crucifixion. Full of outward show but totally lacking and empty of anything for Jesus. No fruit. Just a bunch of leaves. That fig tree cursed by Jesus Christ would die within the day. And so the rebutting of the fig tree would be the sign of Christ's coming again. The budding of the fig tree would be the sign of Christ's coming again. And now things will make sense in Matthew 24, 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. Summer is coming. Summer is here, prophetically. Because there's a scripture where it is made reference to that the time of summer has come, but it has ended. And those who have not turned to God shall not be saved. So summer is really important here. The, the, the fact of this fig tree being a, a symbol of Israel, of Israel being budding again, Israel coming to life again, Israel being planted in the land again, that is significant. That is what the preterists and the replacement theologists and all of these post-toasties, post-millennial this and amillennial that, Saying all these things have already come to pass. That's where they're wrong. Jesus' words will never pass away. So likewise he says, Ye when you shall see these things, Know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation, The generation of the rebutting of the tree, Of the fig tree, the rebutting of Israel, Shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. At the beginning of the service, well, actually, at the beginning of uh, of our our, our, uh, offering time, we read Psalm 12. But I want you to look at the two prominent verses, verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation. What does he mean? Thou shalt keep them. Thou shalt guard them. Thou shalt protect them. Thou shalt put a hedge about them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve and maintain and watch over them from this generation generation forever every word of God is pure and every word of God is true and every word of God will come to pass you cannot take a whole section of time and say it's already happened and think well you know then we just we're just waiting for what are we waiting for I'll tell you what we are waiting for. We're waiting for Jesus Christ to come for his church. That's what we're waiting for. Because when that happens, then everything else will fall into place. So we're at a crossroads. We are at a crossroads in these last days when dealing with the issues of the scriptures as they apply to the fulfilling of prophecy. There is, folks, a prophetic thread that binds every page of the scriptures from eternity past through the beginning of time and creation. From the promise of the coming of Messiah to the spiritual struggles of the nation of Israel with the wickedness of the world. To the coming of Messiah in the flesh, first, that the world through him might be saved, and second, that when he comes at the end of time, he will come to judge the world of sin and destroy the works of the devil, and then on to eternity future. And that is still to happen. I hear these scholars say all the time, listen, you know, there's only about 27 to 30% of the Bible that is, a, that is prophecy. I beg to differ. I believe that the Bible is all full of prophecy from Genesis to Revelation. And we need to have that perspective and understanding that what began for us in time is prophetically pointing to Christ coming again. So the war that we talked about last week, that conflict that involves what we know today as the deep state, whether as shadow governments under the surface or, or deeper sinister occultic forces influencing governments toward a one world order, toward a one world government and a one world religion and a one world supreme leader, which will eventually be known to us as the Antichrist or the beast. It didn't just begin in the time of the Apostle Paul. It didn't just begin then. It began before the creation. As we saw last time when we read what Lucifer said in Isaiah chapter 14. That he was gonna be like the most high God. That's where the deep state began. Ezekiel 28. Where it talked about the anointed cherub, the one who was a worship leader before the very throne of God, who turned prideful because of his appearance and because of his position, and yet would be told, But you'll just die like men. And eventually, this would lead to Genesis chapter three that after creation, there in the garden, would be a walking talking serpent. Who we know from the book of Revelation identified as Satan himself. To do what? To confound and to begin the process of controlling the deep state, the deeper state and the deepest state. Did God really say that? hath God said. You're not going to die. God's a liar. You know we're telling that to our children in schools today? Since 1960, when, the word, when, when, when prayer was taken out of the schools, when the word of God was taken out eventually in many different ways and different cases, and though that, that battle goes on, you know, as far as freedom of, of religion and so on and so forth in the schools today. But let's, let's face it, those of you who have any connection whatsoever with the public schools that I did for many years, the very process of removing any understanding or any knowledge of or any statements toward Christ and God and the Bible and all, are more attacked today than ever before. So again, all of those references, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Genesis 3, those references referring, of course, to Lucifer and Satan himself. But I want to tell you, he didn't act alone. He did not act alone. Consider, again, our text in Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Let's begin by looking at principalities, what are they? Because principalities is in the plural. If we turn to the one chapter letter of Jude, which is right right before the book of Revelation, so it's the next to the last book in the Bible. But if we turn to the one chapter letter of Jude, there are some fascinating statements worthy of our attention. First, consider the verse which gives us understanding in what is described for us in Genesis chapter 6. Now, we're going to come back to Genesis chapter 6 next week. That's pretty much where we're going to begin next time. But this is kind of giving us the understanding of what is described in Genesis 6. And that is beginning in verse 3 of Jude. Because Jude says, beloved, he's speaking to the church. Anytime you see the phrase beloved, he's speaking to those believers were loved by God beloved when i gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation what he was saying was when i started this venture of writing i was going to write to you about our common salvation it was to be an encouraging letter it was a it was to be something that would encourage the churches he says when i gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation it was needful for me to write unto you. And that word needful changes everything because in the Greek it literally means distressingly necessary. It became distressingly necessary for, for a Jew to write to the church and exhort them, as it goes on to say, for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly, diligently contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And he uses the word "contend" there. The Greek word there actually means it's it's a it's a uh, an athletic term, a Greek athletic term that had to do with conflict and battle. In particular, either in wrestling or boxing. In fact, those of you that are familiar with with boxing terminology, when when two boxers are contending for a crown, what did I just say? Contending. They're contending for the crown, or they're contending for the belt. So that word even to this day is used. They're contending. And we are called to contend, fight for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Don't forget what Paul said to Timothy at the very end of his life when he said, I have fought the good fight. We talked about being soldiers of Jesus Christ last week as well. Knowing who our enemy is and realizing we're in a battle. So Jude said it was necessary, distressingly necessary, for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, certain men creeping into the church, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Turning the grace of our God, the undeserved favor of our God into filthy wantonness, into filthy depravity, and into filthy shamelessness and denying the only Lord God. Those terms are applied to what they are saying about God and about Christ in the church. You could actually liken that idea to the Gnostics In Colossae, what we've been studying in the book of Colossians. And what was trying to enter into all the churches, and eventually did when you read Revelation Revelation chapters 2 and 3, of the churches in decline, there was always someone creeping into the church unawares. And people have entered into the church unawares because they have set aside the word of God. They've set aside the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They set aside especially the gift of discerning of spirits. And have said, well, welcome in. You got an idea. Well, let us know about it. Maybe it goes along, you know, with the fact that Jesus is such a nice and kind and sweet Savior. Yeah, but he's also the judge. We don't tell people about that, do we? Well, we should. Because that's what Jesus is coming back again to do. So they teach to deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what they're doing in many seminaries today. Many so-called Christian seminaries today have professors who don't even believe in the deity of Christ. Many of them don't even believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Many of them don't even believe that Jesus died on the cross. Some of them have even embraced some of the Islamic understanding of that, that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, as it were. So, what are they doing? And who is behind that? I'll tell you who's behind that. The enemy himself, along with the principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. That is why it says there, going back to verse 4, ungodly men ordained to this condemnation. They just don't slip into it. Verse 5, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed them that believed not. God is serious about those things that are coming in that bring doubt into the church. That bring doubt into the the main tenets of the faith. And the angels which kept not their first estate. Now now this is what what we were aiming toward here, going to Jude. Verse 6, and the angels which kept not their first estate... Do you know that the term first estate here in the Greek is the very same word for principalities in Ephesians chapter 6? Very same word. It is the word arche, A-R-C-H-E, arche. The angels which kept not their principality. They kept not their first call. But they left their own habitation. He has reserved an everlasting change under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. That's what we're going to study in in Genesis chapter 6. Briefly, as as we move on into the points that I'm really trying to get to. The point is, we hear mention of sons of God, daughters of men, giants, the Nephilim. All of these things need to be understood as to not, not just the... Not just the destruction of the world by flood, that's a very prominent thing as well, but more than than ever, the connection between that and what we see happening in the world today, primarily in, in the political realm, but in the global realm, as it were. So going back to our text, let's first ponder the issue of wrestling. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Paul used the Greek athletic term, pale, for the word wrestle, which can be defined as, and listen carefully, a contest between two in which each endeavors to throw the other, and which is decided when the victor is able to press and hold down his prostrate antagonist, namely, hold him down with his hand upon his neck. Now, that's just the wrestling match itself. But when we consider that the loser in a Greek wrestling match had his eyes gouged out with resulting blindness for the rest of his days, we can form some conception of the Ephesian Greeks' reaction to Paul's illustration. How many people were ready to have their eyes gouged out if they lost the wrestling match? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. How many people have lost their spiritual eyesight because they've allowed the enemy to win the battle of this wrestling that goes on because we're not wrestling flesh and blood but principalities you see the believers wrestling against the powers of darkness is no less desperate and it's no less crucial the warfare is not human but spiritual The enemy's foes, uh, or I should say the Lord's foes, who is the enemy, are not human, but spiritual forces that possess unbelievable power. And that's coming from the prophets and the apostles themselves. We are facing unbelievable power. Now, there's no power greater than God's. There's no power greater than the God that made us and created us and and keeps us and saves us and protects us but their power is a lot greater than what we have physically and by the way we're not dealing with a junior varsity here principalities are the first ones they are the preeminent ones they are the leaders that's what the word RK means they're the first ones they're the preeminent ones they're the leaders they're the ones who take the point get the point? the point man the one who goes for first they're the originators if you will with Satan himself those who may very well be, uh, or those who may very well be, those powers mentioned in Revelation chapter 12, in verse 4, where it says, "In his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven." The tail of the dragon. Well, who's the dragon? See, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. Stars in scriptures are symbolic of angelic beings. In this case, fallen angels. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. Can't be any more fallen than that. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to, to be delivered. Who's the woman? Israel. That was a test, but you failed. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. You didn't fail. You were probably saying, it's Israel. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, it is. The dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered. And who's, who's being delivered? The Messiah. Praise the Lord. A plus. Gold star. Jesus came forth through Israel. You think the Lord is just going to disavow Israel from then on? Come on. Israel plays uh, the greatest role in the end times. So the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for, to devour her child as soon as it was born. That has been Satan's plan from the very beginning but he just underestimated something, who the Messiah is. Revelation 12, verses seven and eight says, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. So even God's angels are greater. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Those are the principalities. What about the powers? The powers, the uh, Greek word is exousias, or exousia, is the usual word for delegated authority. It's found both in, 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 in good and, and uh, challenging areas in the scripture. I mean, it's used for good in the sense that God gives delegated authority, even to us. Uh, but also then, we notice that the powers that are mentioned here are delegated authority as well for the liberty and right to exert power. Now, always understand this, that God allows the enemy to do what he does because God knows the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. He never does so as if to say, well, I don't know, I'm going to take a little gamble on this. No, God doesn't take any gambles at all. God never takes a gamble. God's not a gambler. He establishes. And he knows and he accomplishes by everything that happens. So the usual word then here is is exusions for delegated authority, for the liberty and right to exert power. Now, Satan is powerful. Satan is diabolically clever. He is tireless. In other words, he never sleeps. But he's not God. Satan is not God. He's not equal with God. He's not even close to being equal with God. They're, they're not, there's no comparison. They're not on a, a, you know, two, two different levels uh, you know, uh, equal with. No, no, no. He, he's a created being. And has none of the attributes of deity. He is full of knowledge and cunning, but he is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He doesn't know everything and he makes mistakes. Satan does make mistakes. I like for people to say that, but that's the reality. That's the truth. One mistake was to attack Adam and Eve. In fact, his biggest mistake was to organize and motivate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the crowning example of the enemy's power being broken. The principalities and powers that are mentioned first and together are found paired up a few times in the scriptures. Principalities and powers. Principalities powers. The first ones and the delegated authorities. Ephesians 1 verse 21 says, Far above all principality and power, and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. So we see principality and power put together here. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 says to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Very interesting verse. Because what this is telling us here is that it says to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers which we know then are these unseen beings that we ourselves can't see physically but we know that they exist. To them, uh, unto them in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. They'll look at the church and realize God's manifold wisdom. Not our wisdom, God's wisdom in us. Then of course in Colossians 1 verse 16, it says, "'For by him were all things created, "'that are in heaven and that are on earth, "'visible and invisible, "'whether they be thrones or dominions "'or principalities or powers.'" And we're gonna talk about thrones as part of our study. But the important thing is noticing principalities and powers always being paired together. All things were created by him and for him. So even what they do with their delegated authority, God is in control. And they'll never get out of control from that. They can't get beyond God's control. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 24 said, Then come at the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule, which is the word arche, principality, and all authority, which is exousia. And then lastly, all power, which is dunamis or dunamis. You know, the energy of, of power in that particular sense. So there we have... A little bit of an understanding of principalities and powers. Then come the rulers of the darkness of this world. Now the word rulers in the Greek is the word kosmokrator. Cosmocrator. You hear the word cosmos? That means world. And it only occurs here. Kosmokrator. Kosmokrator. It's a very hard word to say. Only occurs here in scripture. And it means simply World rulers. World rulers. The beings that the Holy Spirit is exposing in this phrase are the world rulers of this darkness. The world rulers of this darkness. Satan's master plan for holding the world in subjection, and by the way, that is what the term "cosmocrator" means. Literally, it means holder of the world. Holder of the world. Now, isn't that something for, for the enemy wanting to have that kind of name? He's probably proud of the name holder of the world. You know why? Because the church used to sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. And by the way, God does. Because he's in control of all things. But Satan takes what he can get. He's the cosmocrator. And, of course, his minions are as well. Holding the world can be summed up in a single word. All of this can be summed up in a single word. Deception. 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 You remember at the beginning of Matthew 24, we didn't read the beginning of it today, but beginning of Matthew 24, Jesus used one word four times, or at least the word, uh, the understanding of a word four times in the first 11 verses. Uh, And then once again later on, the word was deception. That in the last days, there will be great deception. So he continued to say, be not deceived, be not deceived, be not deceived. There's deception in these last days. What is the deception? What, what, what is it doing more than anything? It, it, it is bringing confusion into the church. Why? Because we don't have the standard of God's work any longer being what is the rule of faith. so Understand. We'll, we'll talk more about that later. But he keeps people in a state. <clears throat> the enemy keeps people in a state of spiritual. Physio- uh, philosophical. Religious. Political. Social. And personal blindness. He has invented every false religion. And is behind every false philosophy. Every false ideology. And every false theory. He holds people in a state of darkness. And he has a legion of evil spirits. Whose supreme task is to fasten these false ideologies and things like, uh, just like iron shackles on the souls of men. Binding people. And they think they're wise in their own eyes. Isn't that something that Paul said in Romans chapter 1 would happen? Being wise in their own eyes? Professing to be wise, they became fools. Fools and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I want you to consider just some words. If I throw them out to you, consider communism. Godless, right? It is godless. Has always been. Socialism. Big word being used today. Progressive liberal socialism in our own country. What is it doing? Drawing toward communism. But that was the communist ideal all along. To bring that into this country and let it just seep into all areas of society. Evolution. Again, no God needed. We've just evolved over millions and millions of years. Humanism, secular humanism, our society doesn't need God anymore. We, we, we are God. We will become God. We should be the captains of our souls. You know, the person that was attributed to that statement committed suicide himself the person who wrote that poem that, that invictus i believe it's called captain of our, our own where to be a captain of our own soul what, what did it end up with him the soul of the lost and now where there was where there used to be a focus on humanism now there's a focus on transhumanism and artificial intelligence and gender manipulation And multidimensional beings, not UFOs, multidimensional beings. By the way, that's what principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickednesses are. They're multidimensional beings. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We can't see them, can we? They come from a different dimension. That's going to play very strongly in our understanding of the deeper state. But these are just a few things that can be attributed to the rulers of the darkness of this age. By which, by the way, we all had something to do. We all had something to do with it. Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to turn there. We're going to close with this for today. He begins the chapter this way. He says, and you has he quickened. Which again, if you've been with us long enough, you know that to be quickened means to be made alive. And you has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's all of us. We were born in sin. So we were born physically alive, but we were born spiritually dead. No one after, you know, I mean, Jesus alone was significant. He alone was sinless. But from the fall of man, everyone else born into this earth was born in sin. So we were born spiritually dead. So in you has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Listen to that. We walked according to the course of this world. The ways of this world, the roads of this world, the paths of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. It worked in us. Maybe for a short time, maybe for a long time. But it worked in you. Kept you disobedient. Among whom also we had all our conversation or conduct in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, wrath, even as others. So before we get to the last designation, which is the spiritual wickedness in high places, which we won't do today, we need time to digest what we've seen and heard so far. We're just getting started. We're just getting started. That's the hardest thing about doing something like this. Is that we just keep getting started. But somewhere along the line, we're going to pick up steam. And we're going to learn more about the deep state, the deeper state, and the deepest state. But I want you to be encouraged by the next passage as we close for today. The next passage begins with... The great statement, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ by grace. Are ye saved and has raised us up together? Believer, God has raised you. He's raised us up together, made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Today we're sitting in this place, fairly comfortable chair. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're also sitting in heavenly places in Christ. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I don't know about you, but I, for one, believe so strongly that that salvation that Jesus promises us Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That salvation that Paul promises us when you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead that you shall be saved. With that promise today we can be in this room in spite of everything that we've heard about what's going on in the spiritual realm With principalities and powers. And the rulers of the darkness of this age. With all of that. We are safe. And we are protected. And we are thankful. That God loved us. With an everlasting love. And loves us still. And will love us throughout eternity now will you love God and will you love him with all of your heart and all of your soul all of your might and all of your strength will you love him today will you love him (laughs) see or no amen